0: Amen. We can you give the Lord a praise offering today? Love doing that. All right, you can have a seat. We are so glad to have you with us on this really, really warm Memorial Day weekend. And uh, welcome those who are watching online, uh, part of the local community, part of our global community. We're just so glad that you are with us. Josh Falk is our pastor of uh, Discipleship Engagement uh, leads all of our small group ministries, and uh, Josh has some announcements to share with you today. We've got a really awesome summer coming up, so take a look at this.
1: Hey everyone, so great to have you with us today. We want to welcome you, if this is your first time joining us today, welcome to Fairfax. We would love to meet you, hear a little bit about your story. If you are here with us in person, come find me out in the lobby. I'll be out at the info table. And if you're online, there's a button at the top that says new here. Fill that out and we'll be in contact with you this week. Our mission as a church is to love our neighbor and see them raised to life in Christ. And one of the ways that we live out that mission together as a church is through our Fairfax teams. Through the giving of your time and your gifts and your talents, God can make a difference through you. So if you're not in part of a team and you're interested in learning more, you can go to our website or come find me out in the lobby. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Josh. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. And I oversee our small groups. And I'm super excited that our summer groups are kicking off next week. Our summer groups will meet for about eight weeks. And it's just going to be a great chance to meet new people, share life together, and grow in your faith. And if you're not a part of a group, it's not too late to sign up. You can go online to our website or come talk to me in the lobby. Our Global 5K is next week. And if you haven't signed up yet, you can still go online to our website to register. But even if you aren't interested in running, there's still ways you can participate. We are dedicating this year's Global 5K to one of our partners in Zambia called Villages of Hope. Our goal is to raise over $20,000 to provide hope for 600 vulnerable children. You can give as little as $30 and it provides care for a child for a month. Or you can give $1,200 and it sponsors a student to go to college for a year. Any amount you give makes a difference. To learn more and to donate, you can go online to our website. That's all I have for you guys today. If you have any questions or want to talk about anything, come find me in the lobby. See you soon, Fairfax.
0: All right. I just want to say a word about Villages of Hope. Um, it's been a partner that we've been connected to for a long time. And as Josh was mentioning, they're just doing amazing, amazing work. They're, they're providing family centered um, uh, homes for orphans in Zambia. Uh, but they're, re- they're doing more than that. They, they really are transforming a whole community uh, through businesses that they have started, jobs that they are providing education that they're providing, uh, not just for the children that are at Villages of Hope, but for the whole community, and uh, kids that are, are, are going to college, are, are taking the next step, uh, their future is being changed. It's just an amazing, amazing organization, and one of the reasons we wanted to kind of dedicate this Global 5K to Villages of Hope is that in 2019, um, they went through, uh, Zambia went through a severe drought that really kind of uh, impacted Villages of Hope in some really profound ways, particularly financially. And then in 2020, of course, COVID hit. And so uh, they've had two years where they've just been in a a kind of a deficit situation. So we wanted to respond to that. We believe in this organization. Uh, They're a sustainable organization. They're doing so many things well. And uh, so, if you haven't signed up for the 5K, get signed up for that, it's gonna be a blast, and uh, you don't have to run it, you can walk it, you can crawl it, you can go back, whatever you wanna do, but just, uh, you know, sign up for that. And and if you can't do that, again, uh, we would love for you just to um, generously support Villages of Hope. You can do that, and you can give just to the overall ministry of Fairfax, if you wanna do it as an act of worship today, uh, if you're watching online, there's a little button that says "Give" and uh, you can start the process that way. Uh, if you're in the sanctuary here, there's some offering boxes in the back of the sanctuary you can use, or you can text Fairfax Give to seven seven nine seven seven. A couple of things, other things I want to share with you before we launch into the message is that uh, I mentioned last week that we've hit a kind of a milestone in our congregation in terms of vaccinations that about eighty percent of our adult population is vaccinated, which is Really cool, we've been praying uh, for that, praying that would give us some flexibility in terms of our gatherings, and so next weekend, next weekend, uh, for the adult service, we're gonna maintain kind of social distancing and spaces between the rows and all of that, but it's gonna be a mask optional kind of environment for everyone that comes, all the adults who come, and uh, we'll continue to uh, have our services online. You can access them that way. We're gonna have an environment, a venue, Uh, Starting next week for folks, it'll be in our hangar, in our student hangar, uh, for folks that want to be in an environment, they want to come, but they want to be in an environment where everyone is required to wear a mask and there's social distancing, we'll provide that as well, so lots of options. And then in July, uh, the beginning of July, uh, our children's ministry will no longer require face masks for kids, and we wanted to give parents kind of a... A little bit more of a runway to kind of get prepared for that, make some decisions, all of that. And then our students will also hopefully be in a a face mask not required kind of environment. We're kind of monitoring uh, vaccination rates and all of that with the kids and hope we'll be at a place where we can do that as well. So lots of changes for the summer. We're really excited about it, excited about the options that that it gives and uh, excited about just kind of moving into a new season in the life Of our church. All right. Oh, one other thing is that as we come out of COVID, we're trying to assess like what does church look like as we come out of this pandemic in terms of people that are online, people that may remain online, people that will be coming back. Uh, and we're trying to evaluate just our services, our service times, how many weekend services uh, do we need, do we need two, do we need three, do we need four, what are the times that work the best for our congregation, and what are the times that work best for those who you are reaching out to and inviting to be a part of the weekend experience. One of our core values is invite, and we want to be an invitational congregation. Uh, congregation, and we want to create an environment that makes it the easiest for you to be able to invite folks to come. So we're going to do a survey. It'll probably go out on Tuesday, and uh, so encourage you to fill that out. You've been so great. We've been doing a lot of surveys, and you've been so great about doing that, Um, but we'd like to fill this out. Give us a little bit of input from you uh, about what your thoughts are on that. All right, so we're continuing our study in the book of Acts, and this week we're looking at Acts 16. And Acts 16 is all about the planting of a new church in Philippi, in the city of Philippi. Philippi uh, was located in Macedonia. It was the first place that Paul, when he kind of was called over by an angel, he was heading into Asia and an angel kind of had a dream and called him to come into Macedonia. And he goes to Philippi. Philippi is located where modern day Greece is now and uh, so this is all about, in, in chapter 16, all about the planting of this new church. And basically what chapter 16 is, is three stories of transformation. Three very unique stories of transformation. And we don't have time today to kind of go in depth to all three of those stories. So I just want to kind of summarize the first two stories and then go a little, more, a little more in depth on the third story and then draw some conclusions and then we'll kind of go from there. The first story is about a woman by the name of Lydia, and we're first introduced to Lydia in verse 13 of chapter 16. It says, on Sabbath, they went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. Now this is Paul and Silas and a few other colleagues that have made their way into Philippi. And we sat down and we began to speak to the women who had gathered there. And one of those listing was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira who was a worshiper of God, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message, and his message, of course, was the message of the gospel. Now, what do we know about Lydia? We know she was a business owner. We know that she ran her own business. We know that she was probably a pretty wealthy person because she was a dealer in purple cloth. And cloth that was dyed in purple was very expensive. You had to have significant financial resources just to maintain an inventory to be able to buy it and to sell it. And we know that the people who bought the purple cloth were also pretty wealthy. Her clients were pretty wealthy because you had to have some resources to purchase it. So Lydia was kind of like one of the Owners of those high-end clothing boutique stores, right, that sells beautiful clothes to beautiful people. That was kind of Lydia, selling beautiful, beautiful clothes, beautiful cloth to beautiful people. And we also know that Lydia was a spiritual seeker. She's described as a worshiper of God. In some of the other translations, it says a God-fearer. And that was kind of a technical term. It was a technical term to describe a Gentile, a non-Jew, who had kind of moved away from polytheism, the idea that there's all of these different gods, and had started to get very interested in the the God of Israel, and had started to study scripture, started to study the Old Testament, is trying to kind of understand, trying to live in obedience to this God, trying to understand what all the laws of the Old Testament are, and live in obedience to that. So she is a seeker, she's a spiritual seeker. And we know that the first time Paul met Lydia, was near a river just outside the city gates of Philippi, where she apparently gathered there regularly with other Gentile women who were also spiritual seekers, who were also god fears worshipers of God, where they, in essence, they're doing a Bible study. So they would gather there regularly to do a Bible study. It would have been of the Old Testament, of the sacred scriptures of Israel, but they're gathering there to study the Bible to try to understand more about this God, and so Paul, as he comes into the city, he realizes that this kind of thing is going on, so he goes out and, and meets with this group, kind of, kind of crashes their Bible study, and begins to tell them about the gospel, which they had never heard before, and the result is that Lydia opens up her heart to the gospel, becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. Second story of transformation involves a vulnerable young girl who's been enslaved and exploited by a group of men in the city of Philippi. And we're introduced to her story in verse 16. It says, once when we were going to the place of prayer, this is Paul and Silas, once we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a bunch of money, great deal of money, for her owners by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. And finally Paul became so troubled, in one of the translations it says so annoyed, Paul became so troubled, so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, "In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her." And at that moment, the spirit left her. Now, what do we know about this young girl? Well, we know that she was probably very young, that When the term girl is used in this kind of context, it generally refers to a young girl 10 to 14 years of age. So very, very young. We know that she was emotionally and spiritually troubled. The spirit by which she predicted the future was not a good spirit. It was an evil spirit. It was a demonic spirit. It was a spirit that Paul eventually has to command to come out of her in the name of Jesus. And we know that she was being exploited by some individuals who are making money off of her and off of her fortune-telling abilities. And the fact that she's described as a slave and the fact that the men who are the ones controlling her are described as her masters or her owners means that she's probably been sold to them by her parents who are willing to give up their daughter to make a little bit more money. So this young girl was like millions of other young, women in the history of the world, and I know it's not just been women who have been exploited, there's been men who have been exploited, but particularly the exploitation of women throughout the history of the world where they have been exploited in order to make money for other people. She is like one of the millions of people who have been exploited in that kind of way. And the way this young girl comes to Jesus is very, very different than the way Lydia comes to Jesus. She begins by following, this, this all begins by her following Paul and some of the other believers around the city, shouting, shrieking, saying, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. Now, what she's saying is true. And, and it's kind of this um, outward expression of what we read uh, in other places in scripture where it talks about the fact that even, even the demons believe and yet they shudder. That even the demons know who Jesus is. Even the demons know who the followers of Jesus are. Even the demons know the real story. They know the power of the gospel. They know all of that. Obviously, not that it has transformed them, but they know all of that. And this demon that is at work within her is crying out stuff that is true. These men are are servants of the Most High God, and they are telling you how to be saved, but it's being shrieked and and shouted in a way that is kind of a taunting kind of way, and this goes on for days and days and days, and finally Paul, again, is so troubled, he's so annoyed by all of this that he turns and he commands the evil spirit to come out of her, and the spirit leaves her, and in that moment, she is completely and totally transformed. Very different transformation process than with Lydia. Now, people come to Jesus, right, in so many different ways. Like everyone's journey of faith is so different because we're so different. We're so unique. Our journey of faith is unique because we are unique. Our situations are unique. Our life, our life story is unique. Our experiences are unique. What we're going through is unique. What we are what we are enslaved by is unique. Some, uh, some are enslaved by things that are very, very visible, um, and some are enslaved by things that aren't quite as visible, and sometimes even things that society kind of applauds that. So all of our stories are very different in how we come to Jesus. This young uh, Lydia comes to Jesus basically through a Bible study. She shows up. I don't know if she started the Bible study or or uh, she came and was invited to it, but she's one of these people that someone like brought into this Bible study and they start exploring scripture and all of that and, and they start hearing some things they've never heard before and in the midst of that, she comes to Jesus. We've had lots of people in our church who have come to Jesus because they've gotten involved in a small group, a Bible study or whatever and they have come to faith in Jesus Christ. Very different situation with this young girl. She comes to Jesus through the direct display of God's power. Like God just intervenes in the midst of this situation in an incredibly dramatic way. And we've had folks in our church who, that's their story as well, is that they were going in a certain direction, doing certain things, involved in certain stuff. And, and, and we had a story just a few weeks ago that was told from the platform here of that kind of story where it's like, it's headed toward destruction, and God just intervenes in this powerful way in the midst of this, and, and a person comes to Jesus. That's kind of Lydia's story. But the transformation story of the third person that we're gonna look at is entirely different. And that story begins in verse 19 as we read about what immediately transpires. All of this happens in a matter of just a few short days. And what we're about to read transpires right after this deliverance of this young girl who's being exploited. This is what we read. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates, the city council basically, and said, these men are Jews, they're throwing our city into an uproar, actually they're just throwing their business into an uproar, but they're throwing the city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or to practice. And the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped, talking about Paul and Silas, to be stripped and beaten and they had been severely flogged and then they were thrown into prison And the jailer, who we're gonna be looking at, was commanded to guard them carefully. And upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. So the owners of this girl are furious because the moment she's set free from this horrible stuff that's enslaving her, she is no longer an asset to them, she no longer can produce income for them, and because she's no longer an asset, can no longer produce income, has no service to them, like they're upset, she doesn't matter to them anymore because she's not able to do anything for them, and so they drag Paul and Silas before the city leaders who order, who order Paul and Silas, who are Roman citizens, who order them to be stripped and beaten, no trial, no due process, they just let the crowd basically beat them to a pulp. And then after they're bloodied, after they're beaten, probably bones are broken, they're thrown into prison and the jailer is told to guard them. Now, what do we know about the jailer? Well, we know probably he was ex-military because prison most prison guards were ex-military in the kind of Roman system. After Roman soldiers retired their pension, if you wanna call it a pension, Their pension was being able to have some kind of civil servant job and most common civil servant job for ex-military was as a prison guard. So he's probably ex-military. We know that he wasn't a very nice person, not because he was ex-military, but because of some other things going on inside of him, he was not a very nice person because when he receives these bloodied, beaten, broken prisoners, he he doesn't wash their wounds, he doesn't, um, he doesn't bandage them up, he doesn't take care of them in any kind of way. Instead, he puts them in the what's called the inner cell. So you would have the outer cells that the, the bars, there would be windows in the bars and you'd have some ventilation and some air and some light and all that, but the inner cells were the cells that were dark, there was no light, there was no windows, there was no ventilation. It was a stifling kind of environment. He chooses to put them in the inner cell, we're not told anywhere in the text that that was what was required of him. That's what he needed to do. He just does that, and he puts their feet in stocks. Now, sometimes, like we hear that, and we go, "Oh, stocks! That's like Disney World when you go and you get your pictures taken and you put your feet in stock." No, it's not like Disney World. It's not like this little little thing where you just kind of put your feet in. That the stocks were torture devices that splayed your legs out so that you were in constant pain, particularly if you had broken bones in your leg, which probably they did, so it was a kind of a torture device. Now, on the surface, right, this doesn't seem to be like a great environment for sharing the gospel, Like, I did a lot of case studies when I was in seminary about, like, sharing the gospel. Like, if you're in this situation, this situation, people ask you this question, this question, dealing with this, this. This was never one of the case studies. Like, it was never a case study. Like, okay, here's a situation. You find yourself in jail, being tortured, uh, bones broken, and here's how you do evangelism in that context. It's not really an environment that you think would be an awesome environment for someone to come to Jesus, No Bible studies going on here, there's not a spiritual seeker in sight, no one who's trying to kinda check out and find out like what is this God all about, none of that. There's not even an evil spirit that can be cast out, kind of this dramatic thing done. It's just this horribly painful situation where Paul and Silas are basically at the mercy of this rough, tough, ex-military, guy who could care less about God or Jesus or anything spiritual, and yet transformation takes place. Now, we have the transformation of Lydia that takes place in this circumstance. We have the transformation of this young girl that takes place in a very different kind of context, and now there's this transformation that takes place in the life of this jailer, and here's here's what we read, starting in verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying, singing (laughs) hymns to God, And the other prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was this violent earthquake that the foundation of the prison were shaken and at once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. And the jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, it doesn't tell us what what he thought, but I can guess what he thought. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, We're all here, we're still all here, don't harm yourself. And the jailer calls for the lights, he rushes in, he falls trembling before Paul and Silas, the first thing he says is he brings him out and he says, sir, what must I do to be saved? And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. And at that hour of the night, the jailer took them, washed their wounds, first time that he's shown any compassion for them, any concern for them, washes their wounds, then immediately he and all of his family are gloriously baptized. And the jailer brings them into his house, set a meal before them, and was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. He and his whole family. So how does that happen? Like how does someone like this hardened prison guard who is mean and uncaring and totally disinterested in anything that has to do with Jesus, anything that has to do with God, how does this person become someone who is compassionate and caring and hospitable and not only willing to embrace the gospel himself but is so excited about the gospel that he wants his family to embrace it as well. What is it that he saw in Paul and Silas that changed him? And that's just where I kinda wanna spend the rest of our time, just some things that I think he saw in them that we see in Paul and Silas that had a huge impact. One, I think he saw two people who were willing to keep singing in the face of suffering. We're told that in the middle of the night, midnight, (laughs) the darkest time of the night, in the middle of the night, In the middle of all this suffering, in the middle of all this pain that they are experiencing, Paul and Silas begin to sing. They sing prayers, they sing hymns, they sing anything that will draw them closer to God. Now, we don't know the content of those songs. Like, the text doesn't tell us. Sometimes we make certain assumptions about what the content of the songs were. But we don't know what the content of the songs was. We don't know what songs of lament they were singing, what songs of praise they were th- singing, what songs of thanksgiving they were singing, how they were praying prayers of lament, praying prayers of thanksgiving, praying prayers of praise. We don't know, Like it, it could be all over the board. All we know is that they started singing. In the midst of everything that they were going through, they started singing. And the other prisoners definitely took notice of that. Again, it's the middle of the night. And and they're in the worst possible situation in all of this pain, they start singing. And the text says that the other prisoners were listening to them. That's actually kind of a passive interpretation. The Greek word that's there actually kind of connotates fascination. And you can imagine that. They were fascinated with what was going on. The other prisoners were amazed by their singing. They were riveted by their singing. In a situation where most people would be cursing because it's the kind of circumstance that you curse, and in the situation where most people would be cursing, these folks are singing, and it fascinated everyone in the prison, including, no doubt, this cruel prison guard who hears them singing. Whenever we find ourselves in the midst of like really difficult situations, we always have a choice. We can curse the situation or we can sing to God. And it doesn't mean that our song, I'm not talking about like the fakey kind of singing. I'm not talking about the kind of singing where you you put on a, a, a happy face and you smile and you deny that that anything is going wrong in your life and everything is just fine. I'm not talking about the fakey kind of singing. I'm talking about honest singing, the kind of singing that's filled with lament and with heartbreak and with thanksgiving and with praise, the kind of singing that keeps us connected to God, the kind of singing that says, God, even though it's midnight, And I'm beaten and bloodied and broken and laying here with these shackles around my feet. I still know you are here. I still know you are present. You have not abandoned me. And when we sing to God, rather than curse the circumstances, the people around us pay attention to that. The world pays attention to that. Even the ones who have no interest in Jesus, who could care less about all this, who are not quite sure that God even exists or that they believe in a God or whatever because in a world that is filled with cursing and we live in a world because it's broken and there are so many difficult circumstances that we go through in a world that is filled with cursing which is the natural response to the horrible stuff that people have to go through People who continue to sing are fascinating. There is something magnetic about the people who continue to sing. There's something riveting about the people who choose in the midst of really tough circumstances rather than cursing the circumstances to sing to God. That's the first thing. I think the second thing that they saw, or that he saw, were two people who were willing to keep doing good in the face of evil. When the earthquake shook the foundation of the jail and the doors of the prison cells like flew open, the jailer took out his sword and was going to run himself through with it. And the reason was that the penalty of losing a prisoner was that you would be put to death. And so in a, in a, in a culture of kind of shame and honor, it's just like, okay, I'm going to get ahead of the curve here and do the honorable thing. And so he's about to do something destructive to himself. And in the midst of all of that, Paul calls out and says, no one's moved, everyone is still here. And when the jailer hears that, this is what's so interesting. He's about ready to run himself through with a sword. Uh, Paul and Silas cry out, hey, we're here, no one's moved. Um, um, we've not left, we're not doing anything harmful to you, we're not trying to get out of the prison. We're nothing his first response is to run to them and ask the question, what do I have to do to be saved? Like, why would that be his first response? Because he knows that he has been unnecessarily cruel to Paul and Silas. And if they had wanted to, they could have Paid back his cruelty with cruelty. I mean, that's what typically happens in the world is that cruelty is paid back with cruelty. And they could have paid back his cruelty with their cruelty. They, along with the other prisoners, could have rushed him, overwhelmed him, and even killed him. But they don't. They refuse to pay back cruelty for cruelty. They refuse to pay back evil for evil. They they overcome evil with good. And the jailer takes notice of that. He realizes that there's something profoundly different about Paul and Silas. He sees that they have a power that he doesn't have. There's something going on in their lives that's not going on in his life, and he's like, how do I get that? How do I get the power that is in your life? I wanna get what you have. Nobody does this. Nobody doesn't take advantage of a situation where they have been treated in a in a bad way and they don't in some way try to pay that back. I want what you have. There's nothing more countercultural, I think. You know, I just think about and I continue to see this as we just kind of watch things happen in the world. There is there is nothing more countercultural. There's nothing that grabs the attention of the world more. There's nothing that changes the world faster than doing good in the face of evil. That's the essence of the gospel. If you wanna boil the gospel down, it is doing good in the face of evil. That's what the cross is all about. It is Jesus doing good in the face of evil. And the evil is present right there in the cross. And what you have in the cross is Jesus choosing to do good in the face of evil. And that single act, of one man doing good in the face of evil turned the world upside down. Nothing turns the world upside down faster than people doing good in the face of evil. Now, here's the deal. Anybody can do good in the face of good. People do that all the time. There are lots of good people who do lots of good things and doing good in the face of good Anybody can do good in the face of good. And all of us have the strength within ourselves to do that. Like we have the internal fortitude if we want to. Like we can do good in the face of good. But doing good in the face of evil is not a strength that comes from inside. It is not a strength that comes from within. It is a strength that comes from above, and that's why when the jailer says, what must I do to get what you have? What must I do to be able to to live the kind of life that you are living, that Paul's response is, it's not something you can do. It's something Jesus has done for you, and so you just have to put your faith, you just have to believe in the one who has done this for you. You just have to put your trust in him In other words, put your trust in the one who did good in the face of evil, and when you put your trust in the one who did good in the face of evil, you will be able to do good in the face of evil. That when you put your trust in in the one who was willing to do good in the face of evil, you will have the kind of power from on high that it takes to do the same thing. And then I think the third thing that he saw in these two people is that they were willing to keep hoping in the face of despair. Look at verse 40, it's the final kind of verse in this. It says, after Paul and Silas you know, got out of prison, they got let out of prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and encouraged them. Now it seems like a little innocuous verse that just kind of is like wrapping up, but it's a really, really powerful verse because the church in Philippi, what we come to find out is it met at Lydia's house. This woman who came to Jesus in the midst of this Bible study, one of the first converts in Philippi, she has the gift of hospitality, she opens her home up and the church meets in her house. So in her house would have been all of these people whose lives have been set free by Jesus, so sitting right there next to each other would have been Lydia, would have been the slave girl, would have been the prison guard, would have been his family, all who have now been baptized and are followers of Jesus, think about that. Sitting in Lydia's home is, is a group of people you would never imagine being together. All of this diversity, like three incredibly different people, three different nationalities. Lydia was Asian, the slave girl was Greek, the jailer was Roman. Different economically, one was rich, one was poor, one was middle class. Different socially, one was a social insider, one was a social outsider, a social outcast, and one was somewhere in the middle. And very different spiritually. One was a spiritual seeker, trying to like figure things out, connect the dots, trying to find and understand this God. One was demonically hostile to all of that, and one was just completely and totally indifferent, just simply did not care. You cannot imagine three more different people, all three enslaved to different things in different ways, but all three set free. In a way that only Jesus can set you free. Think about this little statistic. Most every religion in the world. And I don't know one that doesn't fall in this category. Other than those who follow Jesus. That the adherence to that that faith. Typically comes predominantly from one continent or maybe two continents. Doesn't mean there's not others, but like the predominant is geographically kind of located to that. But roughly speaking, think about this. 20% of the people who follow Jesus are in Africa. 20% of the people who follow Jesus are in Latin America. We're moving toward 20% of the people who follow Jesus are in Asia, a little more than 20% of the people who follow Jesus are in Europe, and a little less than 20% of the people who follow Jesus are in the US and Canada. There is nothing on the face of the planet that has more power to bring people together and more power to set people free than the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no culture that it cannot penetrate. There is no person that it cannot reach. And we just see that over and over again, which means that whatever it is that is enslaving you today, whatever it is that is keeping you from experiencing God's best in your life, Whether that's a behavior, whether that's an attitude, whether that's a fear, whatever it is, Jesus can set you free. It doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter where you're from, it doesn't matter what your religious background is, it doesn't matter what your cultural uniqueness is, it doesn't matter what ethnicity, it doesn't matter what race, it doesn't matter how long you have dealt with this, it doesn't matter how powerful the chains are that you feel are around you that can never be broken, it doesn't matter how long those chains have been there, that in Jesus, Jesus is able to set you free. And he's able to keep setting us free. Because the freedom that we need in Christ is not just a one-time thing. It's not just like when we first come to Jesus, we need to be set free. Yes, we do. But we have to continue to be set free because we continue to become enslaved to whatever it is that will enslave us. Sometimes we become enslaved to our jobs. Sometimes we become enslaved to money, to resources, to possession, to To recognition, to success, to fears that control us, to whatever it is. To behaviors, to attitudes, whatever it is that we become enslaved to that Jesus can set you free. Because there is no culture that the gospel cannot penetrate. There is no person that the gospel cannot reach. There is no one who cannot be set free because of what Jesus has done. God, we are so thankful for the freedom that is ours in Christ. And as we, as we read these three stories, kind of these three case studies, we're just so thankful that, you know, the stories are put together in this way where we're just reminded of your power to transform lives, your power to set people free that come from so many different situations. Lord, it's so easy for us at times to kind of look at others who have who have experienced Christ, others who have come to Jesus, others who have been set free of whatever it is and say, well, there are situations unique. I have a unique situation. I have a different situation. My journey is so different. Lord, you are able to work in every situation, every journey. You are able to transform us and and set us free and allow us to keep becoming the people that you've created us to be. And so, Lord, we pray that uh, we would walk in that freedom. That we would be reminded of the freedom that is ours in Christ. And for those who have never said yes, Lord, whatever their journey is, I pray that today would be the day that they say yes to what Jesus Christ has done for them on the cross. To the one who did good in the face of evil. That they would say yes to your forgiveness and your grace and your restoration and your redemption. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. Let's stand together.